Isn't it good? Thank you. Isn't it good to be here today and worshiping? And, you know, the great question of that song that we need to wrestle with is uh, to figure out if Jesus Christ really is our one desire. And we're going to delve into today with James, uh, a passage of scripture that's going to challenge us in that area. What what is it that we want? But before we do, I want to talk just a minute about Scripture. I think that uh, we need to understand uh, some truths about Scripture in a world that tells us that the, the Bible that we read for inspiration and direction is uh, largely, if not totally, irrelevant. Now, we know that the Bible was written and received in context, right? We think about the Old Testament. It was written to God's chosen people, the Jews. And it was instructing them about a, the covenant life with their creator. And then you turn over to the New Testament. And half the books, if not more, were letters written to local churches to train them to function as a missional entity in a dark world that needed the hope of Jesus Christ. And so... As a body of believers, we can look at the two big themes and say, yes, those are highly applicable to where we are and what God has called us to do. But we also will acknowledge that within the pages of Scripture, there are passages of Scripture, like the one we're going to look at today, by the way, that were penned as warnings or encouragements to a very narrow group of people for the purpose of addressing a very specific, highly contextual issue. And so we read it and first say, well, that's not for us. Uh, normally, when we come to passages like this, we skim over them if we read them at all. And we do so reasoning that they're kind of like the rules of cricket. Okay, we don't play cricket. We're never going to watch a match. And therefore, what do we care? The rules of cricket are totally irrelevant to our lives. But there's an old maxim that we need to understand that rightly says this. Not all scripture is written to us, but all scripture is written for us. Okay, not all scripture is written to us, but all scripture is written for us. These truths, these principles, in every passage of scripture, there are truths and principles that can direct us on our quest toward Christ's likeness. That's why they have been revealed and preserved in scripture. In, in seminary, they taught us a technical term for these truths. They called them dynamic principles. Okay, dynamic principles are, are nuggets of wisdom that have life, enabling them to transcend context. Okay, they have life, and therefore they are enabled to transcend context. So these principles can safely, listen closely to what I'm going to say, they can safely and responsibly be pried out of their context and applied in ours. Okay, we, we can do this with confidence for two reasons. 
First, the writer of Hebrews informs us that God's word is living and active. In other words, it, he is highlighting the adaptability of scripture. It is alive and active in our lives, just as it was in the lives of those who first received it in context. And second, because as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed, just like we are. All scripture has life and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So listen, God inspired, breathed life into, and preserved the scriptures because it is the medium through which he graciously shows us the way to live on the narrow road. So every book, every chapter, every verse has something for us, whether it enlightens, rebukes, corrects, or trains us to be all that God has called us to be. There is a dynamic principle enabling every passage of Scripture to guide us in the way of the light. Now, this is an important question. What is required for us to extract these dynamic principles? First is the humility to recognize that we need direction. It's the reality that we need God's light to shine the way. Second, we need faith that God's word can be trusted. The truth is, when we read scripture, we may not always like what it says. It might push against our urges or desires, the way we think we were born to be, what we think we were born to do. If scripture pushes against that, then we have to say, you know what, I trust God and his word that it's going to lead me. And finally, we need the courage to apply the wisdom revealed. In the world we live in, it says do what you want to do, pushes against the idea of obedient submission to a higher authority, so we definitely need the courage to apply the wisdom revealed. Now today, we're going to get real about our relationship with money, everybody's favorite topic. Well, everybody likes to talk about money and get money, but nobody wants me to talk about money. The reality is, James talks about money, so we're going to evaluate our relationship with money today. And we're going to do so by looking at a scathing indictment that James offers a very small group of wealthy people who were subjugating the masses to economic injustice. So I want you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Now I'm going to pray our prayer from David in the Psalms. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, inspire our trust in your truth, and give us the courage to apply it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. 
Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Their cry, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now remember, James' prophetic rebuke here is aimed at a very, very small group of people who lived a life in their context that is scarcely possible in our context. Okay, we couldn't live the way they do because things are different today. In their day, there was slavery. There was indentured servitude. There were people who worked solely to pay off a debt who never got paid. Payment for wages for those who did get paid was was to be made daily at the end of every day so the poor workers could feed their families. And finally, there was no government safety net for the poor. So it was a wildly different context from our own. But, but, we absolutely must resist the urge to dismiss James' teaching as irrelevant because we know there are dynamic principles that apply to every human heart no matter the context in which they beat. Now, to begin with, it is clear, in my mind, crystal clear, that the root problem James is dealing with here is an unhealthy relationship with wealth or resources. It's an unhealthy relationship with wealth or resources, which, by the way, the Bible refers to every time as greed. It refers to it as greed. And the real issue with greed is that it puts riches on a pedestal that is, should be reserved only for God. Okay, here's, here's what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is, say it with me through your masks, idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. Now, greed is idolatry. Why? Because it is the nonsensical belief that riches can be trusted for our well-being. Greed is idolatry because it is the nonsensical belief that riches can be trusted for our well-being. So the greedy predictably devote their hearts and souls to what they trust, which is their resources. Now, in this address, James is calling out rich people for this idolatry. But listen closely. Please listen. When we look at the dynamic principle, we are forced to admit that the idolatry of greed is as prevalent in the lives of those who don't have riches, as it is in the lives of those who do. You can be greedy on either side of the riches divide. 
Whether you trust what you have or place your hope in what you want, both perspectives reveal a worshipful commitment to the resources, a worshipful commitment to resources that should be solely reserved for God. Okay, the poor can have an inordinate desire for wealth, or the middle class can have an inordinate desire for wealth, while the rich can take inordinate delight in wealth. Both reveal the presence of greed. The issue here is not the possession of riches, it is the desire for riches. It is the faith we place in riches which can consume anyone and lead to sin in the way we gain it, the way we use it, and the way we hoard it. The way we gain riches, the way we use them, and the way we hoard them. Now in these six short verses, James addresses three sins that prove the idolatry of greed. When we desire, when, when the desire for wealth is excessive, things break down. And you begin to see three things every time. There's corruption, carelessness, and cruelty. Corruption, carelessness, and cruelty. Corruption is identified by James in verse 4. Take a look. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed down your fields are crying out against you. Now, this was fraud, pure and simple. Okay, these poor people who worked for the rich people depended upon daily pay. It was standard operating procedure. As a matter of fact, it was even referenced by Jesus in his parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you remember, at the end of the workday, the workers gathered around the foreman who dished out their wages. They got paid at the end of the day. Why? Because the money the workers earned today fed their families tomorrow. Okay? They literally sought daily bread. So when the workday was done, they had to get paid. It was their daily bread. But for whatever reason, these rich people in James chapter 5 were not keeping their end of the bargain. Okay? They were not paying on time. And sometimes, according to the Greek text there, they weren't paying at all. So, but whatever the issue... Their practice was corrupt. Now, it seems crazy that this would happen today, right? I mean, there are so many laws and people just don't do this, right? Wrong. People still cheat the worker. And sometimes the worker doesn't get paid. When I got out of grad school the first time, I worked for a fiend, I mean a friend who I met in... Bible study at our church in Columbia, South Carolina, and the company that he owned was called ASAP, All Source Apparel and Promotions, and I was basically a salesperson. He, he, I was a salesperson. He paid me uh, weekly a little bit, but the majority of what I earned was based on commission, and so when it finally came time for me to collect on my first big deal, which was the, with the March of Dimes in Columbia, I, I was told to go through our usual routine. Here's how it worked. I would go to his house. I would raise the garage door. This was before the electricity would raise it. I would have to turn the, you know, raise the garage door. 
and the check would be with my stuff. This is what he told me. The check would be with my stuff that I needed for my appointments the next week. So on the big payday, I was so excited. I was already married. We needed the money. And I went to the garage, grabbed my folder, and took off. But, but when I went through it, there was one thing missing. My check. Nowhere to be found. And so, of course, I called him which means I had to find a phone to call him because this was back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and we didn't have cell phones. And I called him, and instead of telling me that he forgot the check or that he couldn't pay me on that day, he actually told me that the wind must have blown it away. He, he should have told me that the dog ate it, right? It would have been just as plausible. But whatever the truth, whatever the case, the truth is, my brother in Christ was withholding my wages. And it was a corrupt thing to do that put Nikki and I in a pretty tight spot. Because he was just unwilling to part with the money. It was greed. It was corrupt. And it affected my family. Now, that's what James is saying these rich people were doing to the poor consistently. Okay, their greed couldn't bring them to part with what they thought to be their money. Okay, but that was just the beginning of the issues. The second issue was carelessness. Remember, there's corruption and there's carelessness. Now, it wasn't carelessness like, I lost my keys, or I left the milk out all night. It wasn't that kind of carelessness. It was carelessness that says, I couldn't care less. In their case, the carelessness related to the needs of others. And it showed itself and its greed in two ways. First, they hoarded their wealth. Now, in those days, there were three kinds of wealth beyond the possession of property. And it was these three kinds of wealth that distinguished one as much wealthier than others. Okay, and the three kinds of wealth were food, clothes, and precious metals. Okay, it was food, clothes, and precious metals. And we know they were hoarding these kind, this kind of wealth because of verses 2 and 3. Take a look. Your wealth has rotted, the, and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Now, the word rot there at, in the first part of verse 2 refers to the putrefaction of food. Okay, and why does food rot? It happens when it's not eaten before it spoils, right? And in those days, there weren't days of refrigeration. There was no reason to hoard food, yet the rich were doing it. And when do moths eat clothes? When they're in storage. Not when they're being worn, but when they're in storage. And while we know that silver and gold don't actually corrode, the prophetic point that James is making here is that when the day of judgment comes, those riches that you have been holding on to will be totally worthless if 
They haven't been stored in heaven. By investing them in the building of God's kingdom, by investing them in the needs of others, just as Jesus suggested in the Sermon on the Mount. Hoarding their riches took these resources that God provided for his people out of circulation, and it ultimately made those resources useless. Except, of course, for those who showed the second sign of carelessness, which was self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is obviously careless because it utilizes resources that could meet legitimate needs for excessive personal gratification. In the economy of God, we know that God has given us all things to enjoy. So hear me say, I'm I'm not, nor does the Bible say that we aren't supposed to enjoy life and celebrate the good things that God has given us. That's not what it says. But we also understand that stewardship of those resources, the ones God has given us, demands that we care for the needy as well. We can't be careless about the needs of others when God has entrusted resources to us that can be invested in others. So the fact that they were hoarding or creating a purely self-indulgent lifestyle shows that these people couldn't care less about the needs of others and practiced the idolatry of greed. Third, and finally, their carelessness led to the third proof of the idolatry of greed, which was cruelty. Corruption, carelessness, and cruelty. Look at verse 6 where James presents the ultimate end of the problem of greed. And this is a tough one to swallow. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Thankfully, this is to them, right? Their corruption, their careless indifference and excessive self-indulgence wasn't happening in a vacuum. Greed never happens in a vacuum. The very people who helped them build their wealth were condemned to suffer and even die sometimes because they had taken their resources out of circulation. Those who were suffering weren't opposing them. They they had no pathway to challenge them to do what was right. There was nothing they could do about their greed any more than there's anything that anyone can do about our greed. There were no systemic protections for the poor. They had no place to turn. Now, the, the wealthy had the right to self-indulgence. But that didn't make it right. They had a right to do with what they accumulated, whatever they want. But that didn't make it right. 
It was cruel. What they were doing was cruel. And James' message here is that they would be held accountable. Look at verses 3 through 5. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day in the day of slaughter. In other words, you're, you're, you're living the life of Riley even as your life is ending. Taking no thought, being careless about what you're doing with your resources. Oh, and you may have a right to do that, but it's not right. The resources you are hoarding and the people you are harming are crying out to God against you. They may not call you by name, But God hears their cries. And he knows who's responsible. Now James uses imagery here. That would have called his readers. Then and hopefully now. To remember the story of Cain and Abel. They're crying out to God. Do you you remember the story of Cain and Abel? After Adam and Eve disobeyed God. by, By... By the way, by taking the only thing in the world, literally the only thing in the world that God told them they couldn't have. When they took that, they sinned. And they had to move out of Eden. Kicked out of the unimpeded access to God. But just because they sinned didn't mean their relationship with God had ended. His his grace was available from the very start. So they continued to worship God. Which, by the way, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, necessarily means giving offerings to God as a sign that we trust Him to provide what we need. Worship. Now Cain and Abel were two of Adam and Eve's kids. And the scripture says that literally in the course of time, which means when they grew up, they also brought their offerings to God because they wanted a relationship with God. Now Cain, who was a farmer, brought some of the fruits of the soil to God, and Abel, who was a rancher, brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. Now that's very important. Abel brought some of the most valuable The best of his cattle, while Cain brought some of the rest, the leftovers to God. And of course, God looked favorably on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. Cain was upset about the Lord's rejection, and in a fit of jealousy, he killed his brother. Cain killed Abel. 
And so God came along and confronted Cain, telling him what? Your brother's blood was crying out to me from the ground. So James says, hey, listen, you rich people need to look back to that event in the very beginning. And just understand this. That just as Abel's blood cried out to God, the people victimized by your greed are crying out against you. And and because of your guilt, because of your idolatry, you will be held accountable. The greed doesn't happen in a vacuum. The ditches of life are littered with its victims. Corruption, carelessness, and cruelty leaves awake. And our just and righteous God cannot, James is saying, and will not overlook the damage. Stewardship, stewards, understand that truth. Stewards have a relationship with their resources that recognize that resources, all of them, are entrusted to us by God for the expansion of His kingdom. And therefore, stewards offer back to God those resources in worship. Stewards say, I don't want to be guilty of idolatry. I want to demonstrate that everything is His. That all my trust and faith is in him, not the resources he has entrusted to me. And so I'm giving them back, obediently, submissively, listening to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in giving the extras that God nudges me to give, but also dutifully, consistently giving back to God a portion of my income as an indication that my income is from Him. And listen, here's what Jesus said. When you offer gifts to those in need, you're giving them to Him. It's an act of worship. The dynamic principle for us today demands us to evaluate not whether we're rich or poor. That really doesn't matter. It really doesn't. But whether or not we're greedy. And that matters. And what is greed? It is an inordinate desire for wealth if we don't have it or it's an ordinate delight in wealth when we do. It's the idea that I can trust wealth. And if I trust wealth for my well-being, I've displaced God who alone Belongs on the pedestal of my trust. So. 
we have to uncomfortably ask and answer the question. Do I practice the idolatry of greed? According to James, you can look at your patterns. You can evaluate your spending, your investment in the kingdom of God. And you'll have your answer. Let's bow our heads. God, we confess that this is, this is challenging. And we're thankful, Lord, that you're just not, of course you're not, but you're not throwing rocks at the rich. You're actually inviting all of us to evaluate our relationship with resources. So I pray, Lord, that we'll, we'll have the courage to do that right now. Do we have an inordinate desire for, do you have an inordinate desire for wealth? By inordinate desire, that means that you believe your future hinges upon the acquisition or the preservation of resources. Now again, there's no prohibition here against making money, saving money. We have to plan. We have to serve our families. But there is a prohibition against hoarding money and trusting it. It's greed. It's idolatry. So I just want you to evaluate your heart. And listen, here, here's the deal. James' warning was prophetic. It pointed to the future. And it is a warning that is prophetic for us today. It points to a future, the end result of greed. Meaning that there's space, there's time to repent and to get right with God. What will that require for you? It will require that you have the humility to recognize you need God's direction. You have the faith that God's word can be trusted. And you have the courage to replace your faith in resources with faith in the God of heaven. Giving has always been a part of our worship to God and it's been a part of God's demonstration of love to us. You remember? For God so loved the world, me and you, that he gave. Generosity, the loving and serving of others is at the heart of what we do unless we practice the idolatry of greed. So will you be honest with God right now?
honest with yourself. And ask God to show you the way forward that will honor him and expand his kingdom. Father, thank you so much for the warning. Thank you for the truth. And thank you for the grace and the enabling of the Holy Spirit that can help us align with your vision for our lives and our resources. May we live to honor you and serve your kingdom. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Listen, we, today we talked about your relationship with money, but the reason is because at the heart of what we're about is your relationship with God. And the scripture tells us that we have a relationship with God because God loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son. He sent Jesus to live and die and to be raised from the dead so we could be connected with our creator. That's the most important first step. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't made that connection with God, it begins there. And then as we nurture that relationship, we have to put aside all those things, all of those idols that we serve that can interrupt our fellowship with our Creator. This is really about a relationship with God that transcends our relationship with resources or anything else. My hope is that you have that relationship with God and you're trusting in Him to lead you on the path to the abundant life He's called us to live. I'm really grateful that you've joined us today. And uh, I look forward to continuing the study of God's Word through the book of James with you next week.